Well, we are continuing our series this morning in Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18. If you are using a pew Bible, you will find it on page 13 this morning. Page 13 on the, with the pew Bibles there. And if you're new to the Bible, or it's been a long time since you have been to church, uh, you should know that the, 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 the large numbers are the chapter divisions, the small numbers are the verse divisions, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 15, so that's this, the small numbers there on page 13 in the Pew Bible, but the small numbers, the, the verses, verses 1 to 15 of Genesis chapter 18. And you should also know that those verses, those chapter divisions, those numbers that you see in your text were not original to the scriptures. They were added later on, and you can understand why. If we all had copies of the Bible with no chapters or verse divisions, and I simply got up and I said, go to the passage in Genesis where Abraham uh, meets and serves lunch to the Lord, that might cause a lot of confusion and difficulty. But that's what happens in our text this morning. And uh, we are finding ourselves in Genesis chapter 18. And this is our month-long emphasis on the mission that Christ has left us with. To go and make disciples. And one of the most significant missionaries in history is that of Adoniram Judson, who in 1812 boarded a ship along with his brand new wife and went to the country of Burma, now Myanmar. And for 40 years, he served the Lord there, experiencing all sorts of hardship and difficulty. Lost his wife, lost Buried two wives there, lost children. And for years, Judson's life looked fruitless, hard, difficult, with no purpose, with no existence, with no fruit. Now, looking on this side, two, almost more than 200 years later, we can see the fruitfulness of what he, of what he accomplished there. In fact, that country of India is still living, I'm sorry, not just India, but that whole area, primarily Myanmar, they are still living off the fruit of what he accomplished. But at the time, it was not at all clear. He encountered so many difficulties. The first three years of his ministry there was simply trying to learn the language of the people, spending at times up to 12 hours a day with a tutor, to try to lead and guide them. And it was six years before they would lead their first soul to Christ, before they were able to convert, see one person converted to Christianity. And it was only after 12 years that they boasted 18 people. 12 years of their lives spent toiling. At one point, the mission board worried about him, worried about the mission there about its long-term fruitfulness, wrote and asked him what he thought the prospects were for the future there in Burma. And Adoniram Judson's response to them, as he wrote back to them, part of his response was this. The future of Burma was as bright as the promises of God. 
brother and sister, friend, I would argue that that is something you and I need to rediscover, to renew. The promise is not just for our future, but for our future together are as bright as the promises of God. Not as bright as you, as, as, hard, as, as, as the labor that you and I put in. Not as bright as the greatest leaders that we might have. Not as bright as how much money is given or as how many pews are, or how much of the pew is, is filled, but rather as bright as the promises of God. And in our text this morning, we get a glimpse of what that bright future and the glorious promises rest upon. Not our hard work, not our abilities, not anything we bring to the table, but rests upon the goodness and the power of God. So what we're going to do this morning is I'll I'll read through the text. We'll kind of break down the text for us, and then we will try to draw out some important things that this text identifies for us. So read along with me, as, or, or follow along, rather, as I read in Genesis 18, 1 to 15. This is the word of the Lord. Then the Lord appeared to him by the terebinth trees of Mamre. This is a specific place in Israel. At the time, it was the land of Canaan. It is about 20, 15, 10, to, between 10 and 20 miles uh, between uh, the, the Dead Sea and uh, and the Mediterranean Sea, right there in the middle, a hilly country. And as Abraham is sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day, so he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the ground and said, My Lord, if I have now found favor in your sight, do not pass on by your servant. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree and I will bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts. After that you may pass by inasmuch as you have come to your servant. And they said, do as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, quickly make ready three measures of the fine meal, knead it and make cakes and and you, some of you, whoever does the cooking in your home, may feel the pressure of this if someone says, hey, by the way, I've just invited a bunch of people home for dinner. Hope you can get something ready real quick. That's what she must have felt like here. Sure, I'll just whip something up from scratch. No problem, Abraham. He goes on. And Abraham ran to the herd, took a tender and good calf, gave it to a young man, and he hastened to prepare it. So he took butter and milk and the calf, which he had prepared, and set it before them. And he, this is Abraham, he stood by them under the tree as they ate. Then they, that is these three individuals, they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? So he said, here in the tent. In verse 10, it goes from three individuals talking and three individuals acting. Now we have one individual speaking. And he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening in the tent door, which was behind him. 
Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age. And Sarah had, you might say, long passed. She had passed the age of childbearing. Therefore, Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I have grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I surely bear a child since I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life. That is, according to this time, around this time next year. And Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he, this individual, the Lord, says, no, but you did laugh. Here what we find is this extraordinary story of Abraham serving lunch in the afternoon to to the Lord. If you're not awake, maybe you will now. Before we continue our study, would you just join me in a word of prayer? As we ask the Lord for his mercy. Father in heaven, we want to see you. Help us to know you, O God. Help us to grow this morning. This is your word. And you have made a promise that it will not come back empty to us. And so, O God, we trust your word. Give us diligence. Clear our minds of what may distract us so that we together may benefit from all that you have spoken. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So what we have here is this episode in the life of Abraham. Abraham is resting under the shade of his large tent. This is like, it's hot out. No one's got air conditioning. If you can imagine a world in which no one had air conditioning, which for most of us was how we grew up. But imagine no air conditioning. It's hot out. You've got a large, he's got a large tent in which he is living. And he is, this is like the siesta. It's the hot part of the day. He's out resting under the tree, perhaps, uh, I'm sorry, under the shade, perhaps under the tree, or perhaps in the doorway of his tent. But he's, he's there, right, right there, at the entrance to his tent, and he's eyes drooping off. And as he looks up at one point, he sees three men close by. He hadn't seen them coming. For whatever reason, there is something that, beyond mere hospitality, that draws him to them. That they demand his attention in some way. Something about them speaks to him. And we're not given much in the way of identifying markers of these three individuals. That is, we're not told that they were enormously handsome. We're not, there is no halo about them that would indicate that these are special individuals. Nor even the Lord. Is there any marker about the one who is speaking called the Lord, that there is anything remarkable about him visually. But we are clear that these are not just men. In fact, if you have, and if you have time this afternoon in the lull between hot dogs and hamburgers, or whatever you're doing for lunch, and then whatever dessert may come after, and before the fireworks, 
I would encourage you to read the rest of Genesis 18 and the 19, and you'll see these individuals continue on and how they find their way. But these are angels. Two of them, at least, are, are angels. But there's this third one that speaks, and we are told that he is none other than the Lord. This is what theologians would call a, a theophany. That is, it, it, that's a big word. That's a $5 word. You can tuck that away for your next words with friends or Scrabble battle. All right? A theophany. But basically, all that means is that God has come and manifested himself in the flesh to his servant. It's a big word describing a very simple reality. We see that in verse 1 when we are told that the Lord appeared to Abraham. And that word Lord there, you see, if your most English translations will have it all in all caps. That is, that is this is the, the covenant name of God, Yahweh. This is the Lord himself who has come. And we can see this in Abraham's response to his guests. He runs from the door of the tent. You've got to understand, men, patriarchal men, they didn't run to do anything. They were dignified. And here he, he runs. He bows himself to the ground. In the book of Revelation, when the apostle John is confronted by angels... A couple of different times. He, he falls on the ground before them. And do you know what they do? They pick him up. Get up. Don't, don't bow down to me. I'm not worthy of this worship. We worship the Lord. And here, no one does that. No one tells Abraham, oh, no, 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 no. You got it all wrong. We're just angels. More than that, you can see the way that this and the way that Abraham addresses his guests. He speaks to all three, but when he is speaking to one, he calls him my Lord. And at the end of verse 5, he refers to himself as your servant. And Abraham serves his guests. He doesn't sit down and join them in this elaborate meal that he has prepared for them. He is standing by as their waiter, as their servant. Meeting their needs. What, what else can I get for you? Can I top your drink off? He is their servant here. Not their equal. And that this is God manifested in the flesh is clear from the way the, the guests themselves talk. It goes from this emphasis on the three and then even the three speaking. And then we get down to the one in verse 10 where we are told... I will, where he says, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life, that is the time this, this time next year, and behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And he is here repeating the same promise that God himself has made earlier. And in verse 13, we're told that the one who is spoken is the Lord. So there, there, there can be, or ought to be, no doubt that this is the Lord and two angels who have now appeared to Abraham. And, and Sarah's response to this whole thing is itself remarkable, and we'll look at a little bit more in the future. But she hears the promise and she laughs. And when the Lord uncovers it, you know, she goes into denial mode. No, 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 I, I didn't laugh. And while we're not told how much they interacted, you could almost could almost get the picture that she comes out of the tent door to defend herself. No, 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 you don't understand. I really wasn't laughing. I didn't say that. And the Lord just looks at her and says, no, you did laugh. And then she says nothing else. She, she knows. 
So what can we take from this whole scene? There are a number of salient, important points, I think, that we ought to draw from this. One of those first is what we see or how we see Sarah and Abraham interacting. We see in verse 12, Sarah's respect for her husband. This is a minor note in this whole scene, but it is an important one. In fact, the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 3 verses 1 to 6, he takes this note and he applies it to how wives are to respect their husbands. You can see with me in verse 12, the way she reacts. She does what? Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Therefore, Sarah laughed within herself saying, after I have grown old, shall I have pleasure? My Lord being old also. She refers to her husband as her Lord. That is, it is a, a term of respect. First Peter, Peter writes in First Peter three one to six. Likewise, wives be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, that they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Verse five. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. You will misunderstand me if you think that I am saying or that Peter is saying that wives, you need to start calling your husbands my lord or my liege or any such terms. Although husbands, you might want that. I don't know. But wives, that's not what the text is saying, okay? What Peter is saying is, is, look, when she refers to her husband, even in her mind, she calls him my Lord. Here is a, a woman who has respect for her husband. She must work at that because if we just have a quick memory of Abraham's life, there are a lot of times in which he's not acting very respectable. In fact, you're going to get back to those times soon in the future. But wives are to respect their husbands. Following Christ means respecting your husband's wives. And wives, the respect you show isn't, isn't supposed to be determined by how great your husband's job is or the size of his paycheck or his looks or his self-confidence or his education or his learning. You are to show him respect because he is your husband. And the hope is, Peter says, when he is wrong, not if he is wrong, but when he is wrong, or even if he is an unbeliever, you are to win him with your respectful and pure conduct. Not by berating him, not by nagging him, not by twisting him, manipulating him, verbally attacking him, but by respecting him. And this is not easy. If this was easy, God wouldn't have to command us to it. This is hard, but it is what God calls wives to. And I, and that, I think this, this works not just for wives, but you who are looking for a husband, young women, or hope that someday the Lord may bring you a husband, 
Look for a husband. Look for a man that you can yourself respect. A man who treats his parents with respect. Who treats his mother with respect. Even when he disagrees with them. How does he treat his mom, his sisters? How does he treat other women? What does he say to them? What does he say about them? Does he try to control you? Is he a good worker? Does he love the Lord? Imperfectly, sure. But is there a desire? Is there evidence in his life that he he wants to follow the Lord? Is he willing to admit sin and fault? Or does he never seem to admit his own guilt? Ladies, if, if you are interested, young women especially, if you are interested in a guy and he never ever admits to being wrong about anything, I don't care how good looking he is. I don't care how much money his parents have. I don't care what kind of job he is. Run from him. Does he read his Bible and pray? Does he, does he tend his church? Does he serve Christ? Does he want to grow? And if you're not sure about any of these, talk to your parents. Talk to your siblings. Talk to your friends. Talk to people who know him. What we desire is that if the Lord would find you a spouse and lead you to a spouse, that it would be a spouse that you can respect. And this, I think, young men and husbands, This calls to us as well. We need to be men that our wives can respect. Young men, you need to work to be the kind of man that will earn the respect of a woman someday. You know, if if the greatest accomplishment in your life is that you have leveled up your character on your online game, you need to figure something else out. If the best thing you do is that you do your laundry, but you haven't been able to get a job or work. You need to work. Provide for your family. Grow. Become the kind of man that will warrant this kind of respect. Begin the habit of praying, of reading your Bible, of studying with others, of doing what God calls you to. And I find it fascinating Peter, and all throughout the Old and New Testament, husbands are not commanded to make their wives respect them. That never, that command never comes to us. It's always addressed to wives. We, Peter goes on when he addresses men in verse 7, the very next verse after he talks to wives, he says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may be unhindered. Which tells us that if we are not treating our wives well, that our prayers are not being heard by God. He will not listen Wives, respect your husbands. Husbands, love, honor, and care for your wives. Second, we notice God's personal concern for Sarah here. We notice God's personal concern for Sarah. What I'm getting at is that as I was reading this passage again and again, it dawned on me that chapter 18 follows 
only perhaps a few weeks, maybe a one or two months off of chapter 17. Where there, God repeats, he has the same promise. That about this time next year, I will visit you and have a child. And, and this has been like the constant refrain. Chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, God promises, him that, God promises Abraham that he will have descendants. Chapter 13, again, we hear the same promise. Chapter 15, again, the same promise. Chapter chapter 17, again, the same promise is given. And now we've got a time stamp, an end date. It's going to be about this time next year. And here in chapter 18, now God does it again. Why? Why the constant repetition? Certainly part of the answer may be Abraham, a little thick-headed, wouldn't be the first husband that that's, is guilty of this. But I don't think that's what's going on. Up till now, God has been addressing Abraham and Abraham alone. And now, for the first time, he addresses Abraham in Sarah's hearing. Up to now, Sarah has only heard about this promise through her husband. And can you imagine, after more than 15 years of this, by now, when the time of childbearing is long past, she hears him say this, and she's just got to be feeling, whatever, this is crazy talk. Yes, 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 I know you had that experience, but it's just impossible now. God doesn't come for Abraham's benefit alone. He comes for Sarah's. Does that show you how patient and kind God is here? How merciful? God isn't just concerned that Sarah go along with everything, that she's just going along with the flow. He's not merely interested in her outward conformity. He wants her heart. So often people, they view the Christian faith as, you're a Christian, as long as you abide by these certain external realities. When what it means to be a Christian at its very heart addresses the heart. What we believe, what we love, who we cherish. Empty religion is only interested in that outward conformity, but God desires humble faith and repentance. And he comes, he comes to address Sarah. That is patience. That is kindness. That is mercy. Third, our secret sins are known to God. Our secret sins are known to God. Verses 10 to 15 unfold this way. God makes the promise. Sarah internally, was she, she's at the door of the tent listening, probably wondering who are these guests that I've had to cook something up so quickly that, that has sent my husband Abraham, this dignified leader and respected man in the region that has sent him into such a tizzy and now he's not even eating with them as his equals. He's standing by as their servant. What would cause this? What is being said? And she's there at the door of the tent kind of listening in, hiding behind it all and she hears the promise made and the promise comes and it blows her away and her response isn't, oh, I believe it is mockery, it is scorn, but not out loud. 
all within herself. All these are all her, her, this is all happening inside her head. She's laughing in her heart. She's not like holding back laughter and squealing inside that everyone outside knows what's going on. It's all internal. If she was texting a friend at this moment, she would be using LOL laughter emojis all over the place. Can you believe what he just said? But despite the fact that she's laughing internally, the Lord knows. He sees her doubt. He sees, he sees it for what it is. She's not trusting in him. He sees her heart. He sees her thoughts. Brother and sister, friend, we too may be sure that God knows all of our secrets. There is not a thought that goes into our heads that the Lord does not see. There is not an emotion that we feel that escapes the notice of our God. We can deny it. We can control our faces. We can hide our thoughts and actions. We can make excuse after excuse to cover up our sin. We can delete our search history. We can hide our call history. We can use cash instead of a check or a credit card so that there's no paper trail tying it to us. We can use someone else's login and password so that we can watch whatever we want on their Netflix account and they'll never know. We can lie to others, we can lie to ourselves, but we cannot lie successfully to the Lord. Because God knows all and he will uncover it. Numbers tells us, be sure your sin will find you out. There is coming a day when all that has been done in this life and in this world will be exposed before God. Where all of our secrets will be uncovered. Friend, live in light of that day. You cannot hide what you think is so safe. The Lord knows and he will deal with us. What we do in secret, what we are thinking about in secret, what you where you wandered to, where your eyes may wander to, the Lord knows it all. Nothing is hid from him. So repent, humble yourselves, confess, plead for his mercy, and let us bear one another's burdens. Do not bear this alone. I'd encourage you, whether it be with a pastor or an elder, or alongside one another, we are called to bear one another's burdens. You know, too often we as Christians, as soon as someone confesses the fact that they may have sin in their lives, we we treat it as if it's shocking when the very first step to becoming a Christian demands that we all confess that we are sinners to begin with. Why is it surprising that we sin? Let us bear one another's burdens. Let us show grace to one another as God has shown grace to us. But more than anything here, the way God deals with Sarah and what he wants you and I to see is he shows himself to her. He asks a penetrating question and it's the question we want to consider here at the end for it is most important. He asks, is anything 
too hard for the Lord. Verse 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? The assumed answer is no. There is nothing too hard for God. This confronts our doubt of God's power. And it doesn't just mean that if you pray for something hard enough or if you use the right words that God is going to give it to you. God is not a, a genie in a bottle that if we pray with enough fervency or with enough faith or if we say the right words, then we get what we want. We are his servants. He is not ours. He is God, not us. We may ask and he may say no because he has the right. And because he knows us and he knows what's best for us. And he has ultimately good plans for his people. But what he does mean is that whatever God promises, he can and he will fulfill those promises. Nothing is too hard for God. No matter how impossible it may seem. No matter how alone we may feel, he has promised to be with us. No matter how it feels, no matter how pointless our suffering feels, he promises that our suffering is ordered by his good hand. It also means that whatever God puts before us to do, we can do with his help. Have you heard the saying that God doesn't give us more than we can handle? That, that is malarkey. A load of malarkey. God regularly gives us more than we can handle. In fact, this story is about God giving Abraham and Sarah more than they can handle. Have a child. We can't. No, have a child. We can't. It's physically impossible. And it's at this moment that God works. God regularly gives us more than we can handle so that we will learn to trust in him. That it is not by our strength that God is glorified, but by our weakness. That God's grace is made strong in our weakness. Because there is nothing too hard for the Lord means we can be sure that whatever we face as individuals, whatever we face as a church, that God's power hasn't weakened and that he will see you through. And this is true even if the world hates you and despises you. This is true even if you are imprisoned for the sake of Christ. This is true even if you are killed for the sake of Christ. It is true even when your marriage falls apart or when grief overwhelms you and your eyes are blinded with tears. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. Because there is nothing too hard for the Lord, we can persevere through every trial. And because there is nothing too hard for the Lord, we can take what appears to be, from our standpoint, to be insane risks. And this is the confidence that drove and has driven and is continuing to drive men and women around the world to give up their lives and to follow Jesus wherever he may take them. 
It is what drives us week after week to to give to the Lord that which he has given so generously and gracious to us. Why would you give the Lord that much? Why would you make this much investment here? Why would you risk this much? Because nothing is too hard for the Lord. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. This is what drove Adoniram Judson to believe that when all seemed hopeless, that nothing was too hard for the Lord. And we may feel that in our current context in the United States, it is too hard. Opposition to Christ and the teachings of Scripture seems to spread so rapidly. Planting and nurturing and sowing and reaping a harvest among men and women in a context where people are self-satisfied and self-righteous and self-entertained seems impossible. But there is nothing too hard for the Lord. Because there is nothing too hard for God, we can trust him to forgive us. Some of you here, even this morning, weighed down with consciences filled with grief, filled with sin. Recently, I talking with someone, and they shared with me that rather than in any way being, feeling as if they could approach God, they were afraid of God. They, in fact, they had no confidence that God would accept them. And if we are in and of ourselves, he will not accept us, for we are sinners And you feel weighed down by that sin as if God would never accept you. And brother and sister, friend, I want to assure you of one thing. That we are far worse in the eyes of God than we can even begin to imagine in this life. But the good news is that the grace of God in Christ Jesus is far greater than our greatest sin. That though God is holy, and yes, he is holy, and yes, he is just, and yes, he must to be holy and just, he must judge us for our sins. Yet in Christ Jesus, Christ has paid for sin so that all who trust in him, all who turn from going our own way, not all who are righteous and, and religious and work hard enough and do good enough, but all who simply trust in Christ alone that what he did on the cross and in rising from the dead, that was sufficient to pay for my sins. It is that hope that drives us to believe the promise in verse of chapter 8, verse 1 of Romans. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Live in light of that text this week. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because nothing is too hard for God. And this pushes us even further. Because that word too hard can be translated too wonderful, too extraordinary, too marvelous. In fact, it is translated elsewhere in the the Old Testament in just that way. So the question might be framed, is there anything too wonderful for God? See, if if anything too is anything too hard for God, that addresses God's power. 
The question, is anything too wonderful for God? That addresses God's goodness, doesn't it? Is anything too wonderful for God? You and I, we live in a world in which we regularly say or think that is too good to be true. Whether it's an advertisement, whether it is a a claim for a, a, or even just a claim for a free sandwich, that's too good to be true. Nothing is free, nothing is easy, everything is hard. You must pay for something with everything. But we will one day experience the truth that we will never, ever, ever be able to say again that is too good to be true. I mean, think about that for a moment. If you have put your faith in Christ Jesus, you will never be able to say in glory, that's too good to be true. In fact, your wildest imaginations won't even come close. Listen to this. I, as I was meditating on this, my mind wandered to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, where the Apostle Paul writes that God is able to do far more abundantly than we can ask or think. And I don't know about you, but I can ask and I can imagine and I can think much. And God can and he will one day do more. And not just a little more, not a smidge more, but far more abundantly. The Apostle Paul stacks these words up on top of one another to give us this image that what God has in store for us will so outshine our wildest imaginations in this life that we will never, ever, ever again be able to say that's too good to be true. Not only is there nothing too hard for God, there is nothing too wonderful for him. There is nothing too wonderful for him. Brother and sister in Christ, the hardship that you are now facing the pain that you are now experiencing, the the frustration that may enter into your life, it has an expiration date. And the Lord who will bring it about, the Lord who will fulfill all of his promises to you is the same Lord for which nothing is too hard and nothing is too good. Rest in him this week. Look to him. Trust in him. Enjoy him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your grace to us. There is nothing too hard for you. There is nothing too good for you. Oh, Father, we pray that you will help us to believe this truth. To anchor our souls deeply knowing you, rejoicing in you, glorying in you. In Christ's name we pray, your good and great gift, your good and great son. Amen.